0: This is Law in the Time of COVID-19, because we have not come up with a better name for this podcast. But I am pleased to say we do have a much shorter host, me, your guest host, Jade Buchanan. I'm stepping into the shoes of our regular host, Adam Goldenberg, which are much too big for me, both metaphorically and literally. Are you worried about COVID-19? Well, there's an app for that, or there will be soon. Governments and employers are exploring the use of smartphone apps to improve contact tracing. Would you install one of these apps to help fight COVID-19? What if it meant sharing some of your data with the government or your employer? Today, we'll talk with leading privacy and employment lawyers about the privacy issues posed by these contact tracing apps. We originally intended it to be a single episode, but we got so much great material that we're breaking it into a two-parter, like Tarantino did with Kill Bill. Part two will be coming soon. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, thanks for giving us a shot. This is the podcast where we talk about the law and policy of pandemic response. It's brought to you by McCarthy Tatro which is a law firm and not a mattress company. If you're a lawyer listening to this on December 31st in a mad dash to get your CPD credits for the year, happy new year. You may indeed be entitled to CPD credits, but you should check our website at mccarthy.ca for more details. If you're not a lawyer, good career move. We're very happy to have you listening just for fun. If you're listening to this podcast for legal advice, I'm sorry to say that that's not how it works. So Mr. Trudeau, if you're listening, Please speak to a lawyer before launching a national contact tracing app, and maybe not your justice minister this time. Nothing on this episode of the podcast or any episode of the podcast is legal advice. The interesting part is coming up in a few minutes when we speak with three leading lawyers who, coincidentally, also work at McCarthy Tetro. but let me get us started by telling you what contact tracing is and why it's suddenly on everyone's mind. Contact tracing is a public health tool intended to interrupt the spread of infectious diseases. It works by interviewing a person who is known or suspected to be infected and tracing the people with whom they've had contact. These people are then offered screening, preventative care, treatment, etc. They may also be asked to quarantine or otherwise be isolated. Combined with aggressive testing, contact tracing has been credited as a key tool for flattening the curve in a number of countries. That's a manual process, but could an app be better, faster, more accurate, or less labor-intensive? Or could it supplement interviews? Could it capture people you interact with but don't necessarily know? Those are some of the reasons why governments are currently considering contact tracing apps. In theory, contact tracing apps can work in a variety of different ways. But to keep it simple, I'll talk about what data the app can collect and where it can send that data. But there's actually a lot of cool technical details out there if you're a big nerd. And let's face it, you're listening to law in the time of COVID-19. You big nerd. For those kinds of details, I'd recommend starting with Barry Sukman's blog at barrysukman.com. And yeah, Barry's also a lawyer at McCarthy Tetro. There's a lot of different types of data that contact tracing apps could potentially collect. If you read just the headlines, you might buy into the mass surveillance conspiracy theories. By the way, if you're part of the resistance and looking for the truth, play this podcast backwards for a secret message. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately for us, The reality is more complicated, but less interesting. The likely candidates for a Canadian app would track only your phone number and register who you contact, potentially when you contact them and for how long. The tracking uses Bluetooth technology, which works at a short range by connecting with other devices that are also running the app. This is the same technology that runs your wireless headphones, and you can understand the range by walking away and hearing when it cuts out. But don't do that while you're listening to the podcast, of course. In theory, contact tracing apps could detect your location using GPS. A lot of other apps do, at least while you're using them, like map apps or ride sharing apps. Those ones currently in use in Australia and Singapore, meaning contact tracing apps, they don't use GPS. And the app Canada ultimately adopts is probably going to not track your location using GPS. So that's what data is collected, but it's important to understand where the data is stored. Most contact tracing apps store the data on the user's device, meaning it doesn't send the data to the app owner or to the health authority. The user can turn that data over from their device when they are suspected of having COVID-19, allowing the health authority to begin contact tracing. In theory, the app could actually send the notice to the individuals who had contact with the infected person, meaning the health authority does not necessarily know who is affected until the affected person contacts them. Theoretically, the app could also automatically send all that data back to a centralized database instead of storing it on your phone. A lot of apps actually do this already. For example, if you're using a cloud app to store your photos, those photos are probably stored in a big facility called a data center and stored on a big computer called a server, and those servers in those data centers can be located pretty much anywhere in the world. Again. As our guests are going to discuss, Canada does not seem to be seriously considering the kind of option where there's a centralized database. But we do know governments around Canada are considering, in at least one case, implementing contact tracing apps. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the federal government will soon be, and I quote, strongly recommending that Canadians download a to-be-determined monitoring and exposure notification app. The government is considering its options for that app. They want to have one that works across the entire country. That makes sense, but it's a little bit tricky because Alberta already has a contact tracing app called AB Trace Together. AB Trace Together uses a model where the data sits on the user's smartphone and does not go to a centralized database. Alberta Health Services can only access the contact data when the individual provides them with that access. It does not collect location data, so no GPS. Alberta may be first, but several other provinces have publicly stated they are considering contact tracing apps. So that's contact tracing apps in a nutshell. If you want to learn more, Google it. Just kidding. Stay tuned for part one of my interview with two of our leading technology and privacy lawyers, Charles Morgan and Christine Ng, and one of our leading labor and employment lawyers, Kate McNeil-Keller. We spoke on Tuesday, May 26th. Kate, Christine, Charles, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm gonna jump right into the first aspect that I want to talk about when it comes to contact tracing applications which is the issue of voluntary use versus mandatory use. So privacy advocates have been calling for participation in contact tracing apps to be voluntary. Epidemiologists generally believe you need around 60% uptake for the apps to actually be effective. Charles, I'm wondering if you can start us out by telling us a bit about uptake and the difference between opt-in and opt-out.
1: Sure. So with some solutions that are being deployed in the space and i'm thinking just um Apple Google is as one which is a which is an API that operates in the background and that allows um you know the the Android system to uh, interact with the the iOS the Apple iOS system those uh, technologies don't involve um the the collection of personal information per se. They're, they facilitate interoperability. And so you can just push those technologies out. The, the Apple Google's talking about uh, having those be built right into their operating system. And it doesn't really raise um, sort of privacy consent issues. You can get you know, fairly high deployment of that technology without having to seek express um, consent. But with contact tracing, um, most of these apps, uh, in order for them to work, involves um, the collection of personal information, in some cases, uh you know, sensitive personal information. Um and there's a registration process where users have to uh, provide some information about themselves. Um and in that context, uh, you know, privacy law requires uh consent. And and in the in the instances where there's sensitive personal information and any health data that's going to be involved, that consent would have to be expressed. And so the difference really is um, if it's going to be collecting sensitive personal data, it has to be opt-in. You have to say, yes, I accept to using this app. It can't simply um, you know, be pushed out and, and, and start acting um, on its own, the, your, your active pers- participation in that process. So uh,
0: what would governments need to consider if they're deciding whether or not to make the app mandatory or not?
1: Well, we're, in, in Canada, uh, you know, we have broad privacy legislation of general application. Privacy rights are, are guaranteed um, by certain of our charters of rights and freedoms. Um I don't think mandatory use of these apps is, is going to be an option in Canada. There are some jurisdictions, um, China, Qatar, India, where the use of these apps, uh, is, is mandatory. Um, but in the Canadian context where, first of all, th- there is some question about the efficacy of, of the, of the applications. Are they going to work? Um, a scenario where it's not clear that um, you know these apps are going to have be collecting the least amount of information that is necessary to fulfill um, a, a legitimate purpose, and where there could be some concerns that um, technology itself doesn't work, uh, a mandatory scenario simply will not uh, apply in Canada. And so I think it's it's not about um, whether it's mandatory or voluntary, it's how do you help uh, ensure that you're going to get the buy-in that you need. And and for that, there's a whole bunch of factors, including public education, which I think we'll get to uh, in a moment.
0: Thanks, Charles. So it sounds like the decision on mandatory vol- versus voluntary is made when it comes to government implementation. Kate, I'm wondering if you can tell us whether or not employers could actually require their employees to install an app, particularly if it's not mandated by the government.
2: It's an interesting question, Jaden. I don't think there's a, a simple answer quite yet. I mean, from the employment perspective, the key issue here is, is the is it a reasonable step in the circumstances to achieve the occupational health and safety objectives that employers have? And, you know, it's very clear, and most public health authorities have indicated that some version of contact tracing is going to be important as employers reopen the workplaces and move towards, um, you know you know, the reinstitution of the physical work environment as part of their health and safety obligations. But whether or not they do contact tracing through an app or whether it is through, for example, you know, old school calendaring and, and relying on an employee's memory as to who they've come into contact with really is, is up for debate. And there is going to be a degree of discomfort, I would expect in, in terms of workplace situations, um, and until we have more clear information as to how the apps work, uh, which ones the largest segment of the population is going to adopt, whether that's by government suggestion or regulation, and, and what those apps do. So from my perspective, there's certainly a basis on which to say that it may very well be reasonable for an employer to mandate the use of the app. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the more practical implications of a mandatory usage. But You know, I think that employers are going to have to really turn their minds to whether or not the app is effective, um, whether it is the least intrusive means by which to achieve the contact tracing purpose, and whether it can address some of the other privacy-related concerns that typically come up when new technology is raised in the workplace. I mean, we've seen similar issues in the past around the use of GPS, around the use of biometrics in workplaces. And you know, in those cert- situations, the same analysis that's going to come to pass here really does apply in terms of, you know, what is it collecting? What is the purpose of that collection? What it will be used for? Is it strictly for? the public health purpose or are there alternative purposes that are going to play in, in terms of disciplinary action, in terms of uh, productivity or performance management and some of the other issues that typically raise employee concern. And so as I, I think it's a bit early to say at this stage that we are going to be able to justifiably implement mandatory use. I expect we will get there. Uh, but, you know, I think right now, Given where we are, there's a degree of risk for employers in that respect. But I think that employers are going to have to take a long, hard look at this. And as the situation evolves and as governments come to a landing on uh, either their recommendation or their decision to implement some sort of mandatory usage, um, that will obviously change the landscape for employers.
0: Kate and Charles both mentioned that we'll be talking about some other topics later in the podcast. Uh, I'm not sure how you know that because I have journalistic integrity and did not circulate a list of questions in advance, but everybody who is laughing is on mute. Kate, just following up on that question, if employers are bringing in um, contact tracing apps, is there a way that they can actually verify compliance and if so, how?
2: Well, I think in part, Jade, that's going to depend on the app itself and whether or not there's any reporting function that goes to an employer, uh, where there is a reporting function that might actually attract some additional concern, because it may signal to employees that there's other reporting function around more GPS-esque reporting of an employee's whereabouts, of their personal activities, of their interactions or contact points outside of the workplace, and so on. But um, you know, I think that if there isn't a reporting function it becomes more difficult to verify. Now, if it's on a company device, for example, that's much simpler because the employer can push out the app onto its own technology through its own systems and whether or not that that app is turned on or deleted or turned off or whatever the case may be will depend in part on the technology but is likely something an employer can monitor if they are dealing with a situation where either they do not have their own employer provided devices um, or where the expectation is that employees are using personal devices for this purpose that becomes much more difficult to manage and so then we turn to mechanisms like employee acknowledgements and declaration forms that may say that they understand that it's a term and condition of their employment that they actually they download and use uh, one of these apps uh, either in the course of their employment or in their personal time or both and so you know I think in that setting you start to rely on a bit of the honor system to to validate that and whether you start to audit that or not is a different story altogether. But a lot of this is going to come down to trust. And, and my understanding of some of the jurisdictions that have, in fact, launched contact tracing uh, uh, through applications like this, you know, they've had relatively decent uptake on a voluntary basis and in that sense i think you know we will see i hope uh, a, a large number of employees understanding the circumstances around this and choosing to participate so it will depend on the circumstances of, of the employer on their technology platforms and what uh, whether they are using company provided devices or not and also what the employee uh, or employer relationships are like with their employee for- workforce for unionized environments, you know, engaging with your trade union partners is also going to be important for um, for this exercise, because having a union on board for this purpose will go a long way towards getting a system in place uh, to ensure compliance, because that will be a big part of, of that issue and that relationship.
0: Great. So, Kate, you've hit on a lot of the practical elements of successfully rolling out a contact tracing app in uh, an employment context. Uh, There are a lot of other practical issues when bringing in contact tracing through apps. A big one seems to be people having a poor understanding of what these apps actually do. Another issue I've seen raised is whether or not this could be discriminatory uh, because not everyone has a mobile device, meaning they would not get to enjoy all the benefits that come with the app. So I'd like to talk a bit about the practical issues of implementation so I'll start with uh, Christine and just ask Christine: How do governments successfully roll out contact tracing apps?
3: Well, I think one of the things we've learned from other jurisdictions is, is the uh, importance of trust um, that the the, uh, the the constituents need to trust the app that is getting rolled out. Um, in Canada, it will be on uh, a voluntary basis. So communications uh, regarding the efficacy of, uh, of the application, the benefits it can provide to the society will need to be well communicated. Um, on the flip side, and you know, we've seen, uh, for example, in the U.K., um, it, it, you know various a number of different uh, privacy concerns uh, being raised, whether uh, you know the the app should have a, a centralized database where you know all the information um, gets transferred to a centralized database, which is um, in the hands of the government or whether it should be a more distributed, decentralized model where essentially the app will just communicate to other uh, individuals on sort of a, uh, you know, a consume, like a consumer-to-consumer model rather than a consumer-to-government model. We can anticipate the arguments that and the concerns that people are going to be raising. Um, already recently in Canada, a group of Canadian researchers um, really called on the the Canadian governments to require, uh, you know, rigorous reviews of the COVID-19 uh, contract, contact tracing apps before they're deployed. They had a number of recommendations um, and best practices for the for government to follow to ensure that um, Canadians' privacy is protected. So certainly um, responding to uh, groups like that, which are, you know, researchers from all the major uh, universities involved in cybersecurity would be an important thing to do. So yeah, a successful rollout also entails a good amount of uptake, as you said, somewhere between sort of usually 55 to 60%, Jade. Um, and in order to get people to do that, they'll have to make sure that um that essentially society trusts the decision that's been made, that there's a trans, there's transparency about the type of information security um, t- testing that's been done on the model, as well as, um, you know, th- that uh, privacy by design principles have been adhered to, so that there's really a as little information as possible. Then again, uh, we'll be looking uh, people will be looking to see commitments from the government that the information that's collected is only going to be used for uh, really for uh, public health purposes. And that um, after the the, uh, the threat is no longer with us, that that information will no, no longer be stored and um, the apps will essentially have a sunset date associated with them. So lots of learnings from other countries uh, can be leveraged uh, before we actually uh, uh, roll our own out.
0: I think Christine nailed pretty much everything. But Charles, is there any other considerations that you would add on for how governments successfully roll out a uh, contact tracing app?
1: I think that's right, Jade. Christine's very been very complete. Maybe just a couple of other points. Part of the uh, government's role in informing um, the population, I, th- I think they have to describe and help the, the public understand a little bit more about the... T- technology and, and how it works um, and 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 things I'm thinking you know the difference between apps that are based on Bluetooth technology that are much much more privacy um, friendly than uh, a GPS uh, technology GPS is is you know literally tracking uh, you, you know potentially uh, tracking your movements wherever you go whereas Bluetooth is simply demonstrating whether you are in proximity to somebody who may have the, the um, contracted the, the virus. Um, and so most of the apps, the, the Singapore uh, app that was launched was one of the first apps internationally that uh, adopted Bluetooth technology as being the basis of the tracing app. And that's very privacy uh, enhancing. So I think if people can get past that initial concern that um, you know, this is a this is a big brother tool. I, I think that will go a long way. The other thing that I would mention is that we haven't covered is, is that sort of fairness and non-discrimination issue. Not everybody has a smartphone, and not everybody has an up-to-date smartphone. So some of the some of the technologies that are being proposed only work on you know uh, if you have an Apple Eight or or more, more recent. Um, well, there's a socioeconomic uh, factor that has to be considered when you realize that, that um, I think it's eighty-six percent, eighty86 percent of the population has got a smartphone, and then of those, it's only, there's you, you would be potentially removing another fifteen or sixteen percent who do not have a current smartphone uh, that could actually handle the app. So you have to think about you know fairness and non-discrimination. You don't want to have marginalized populations or or um, you know, you know, or elderly population that might not have a smartphone. Um, you know, some of the people who who, who most need this technology, um, you have to make sure that they are actually able uh, to uh, uh,
0: use it and deploy it. Thanks, Charles. Um, Kate, roughly the same question to you, but again with the employment law lens on it. How do employers successfully roll out contact tracing apps?
2: You know I think a lot of the issues that uh, Christine and Charles mentioned apply equally in the employment world. and and in fact, Charles's last point was was particularly relevant because when you think about the vast majority of workplaces in the Canadian environment, those that are uh, you know more office based are often populated by individuals who can work from home who can um, avail themselves of other forms of work arrangements and who likely will have an up-to-date smartphone, Uh, those environments where there is heightened degrees of close contact or contact with public, so whether those are manufacturing or industrial sites, retail sites, hospitality sites, etc., those are often uh, populated with employees that are lower-income employees who may not have company-provided devices and may not, in fact, have personal devices that are of the nature that Charles identifies. And so you do have a very real practical challenge there, because in those environments, you have heightened levels of contact with the public um, and, and closer quarters. You know, in a manufacturing setting, it's much more difficult to rearrange or redesign the workplace on a manufacturing line or production line or in a hospitality setting or retail setting than it is in a typical office environment to create social or physical distance. And so in those cases, those might be the populations that in fact need the contact tracing uh, more than those in a more uh, white collar or office based environment. So it does raise some real practical implications that employers are going to have to work through. And, you know, I think that a lot of this comes down to the efficacy of, of the app and how it works, because if you can only get a small portion of your workforce onto it, is that the right? mechanism for the workplace or not um, so there are a number of practical questions that employers will have to to grapple with I think the other issues is you know from an employment lens perspective this has its its grounding in health and safety protections and what is reasonable for for the workplace and while we've seen some employers and some workforce partners like trade unions go to market already in, in pursuit of these apps uh, that may or may not be premature at this point, because if, if the general population based on government recommendation uses one particular app and an employer cho- chooses to go a different direction, does that actually uh, hinder or help the the efficacy of this process. And so I think employers need to be very measured in their decision-making on this. In the interim, they certainly need to have an alternate mechanism uh, for contact tracing to the extent that they have reports of potential or confirmed exposure in their sites. But with respect to the app-based contact tracing, while it may very well be ultimately the best case option for many employers, um, I think a measured approach that takes into account the research that's being done on the technology itself, the reviews and the efficacy reviews that are being done at, by government and public health officials, and, and taking those recommendations to heart, and then assessing their own workforce to understand how they're going to roll it out. And I think that the, that, um, I think it was Christine who made the point, um, Christina Charles, who made the point that communication is going to be hugely important to dealing with a number of the challenges that this raises in trying to educate the workforce and their other stakeholders like trade unions and other suppliers and partners. About their expectations and how this works, what the technology does, what it doesn't do, what the expectations are in terms of employees when they leave the work environment, i.e. that they're not to turn the app off while they're in their personal lives. Um, but the corresponding, you know, commitment of employers to not misuse any information that's gathered. Um, but you know, I, I, that it has to be part of a broader strategy. It cannot be a single one size fits all answer for employers. Employers have to take all reasonable steps in this in the circumstances to protect the health and safety of their workers. This is one part of it, but it has to be part of a comprehensive program and it has to be based on clear evidence-based thinking in order to ensure that they've rolled it out appropriately in their environment.
0: And we're gonna have to stop right there. You'll have to tune in next time for the thrilling conclusion to our conversation. I don't want to spoil anything, but a major character does die. Kate McNeil Keller is a partner in the firm's Labour and Employment Group in Toronto. Charles Morgan and Christine Ning are the co-leads of McCarthy Tatro's Technology Group and are located in Montreal and Toronto, respectively. You can find more of Kate on our blog, Employment Law Advisor, and on a previous episode, Undue Hazards. Charles and Christine will be part of our four-part series on embedding trust into the COVID-19 recovery, starting on June 4th. You can find all of that information on mccarthy.ca. This has been part one of episode 14 of Law in the Time of COVID-19. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and maybe check out some of our past episodes. You could even tell a friend. I fear not too embarrassed to admit you listen to this podcast. We make this podcast for you, and you can help make it better by telling us what you want to hear. You could reach out to our regular host, Adam Goldenberg, on Twitter at AdamGoldenberg, or email at agoldenberg at mccarthy.ca. You can also reach out to me or send me your hate mail. I'm Jade Buchanan. I'm on Twitter at jade underscore Buchanan. I couldn't get the one without the underscore. Or jade at mccarthy.ca. This episode was produced by Chloe Thomas and me. It was edited by Abby Stafford. Abby, can you fix where I said edited when I should have said edited? Thanks. Our researchers for this episode are Daniel Saracusa and Thomas Fox. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Allie Adams, Tommy Barbieri, Kathleen Hogan, Taryn Hunter, Andrea Watson, Matilda Kramerts, Miriam Vie and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro, and of course, our regular host, Adam. Adam, please come back soon. This was way more work than I expected. Um, but still, lots of fun. Make sure you check out our firm's COVID-19 recovery hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at mccarthy.ca. This is law in the time of COVID-19. I'm Jay Buchanan. Thank you for indulging me.